You're listening to Venture Vignettes, a podcast that features learnings from trailblazers in entrepreneurship and investment. I'm your host, Rihanna Shah, and today on the show, we have Stephanie Lampkin, CEO of Blendor. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being on the show, Stephanie. Yeah, thanks for having me. Wonderful. To start out, would love to hear a little bit more about your background. Can you tell us about yourself and can you also tell us about Blendor? Yeah, uh, so I'm originally from the DC area, moved to Silicon Valley when I was 17 to attend Stanford, got an engineering degree, career at Microsoft, went to MIT for grad school and started Blendor about a year or so after graduating from MIT um, based on some of my experiences uh, in effectively joining Silicon Valley tech companies because I was deemed not technical enough. Uh, so I took my non-technical self, uh, those are air quotes for folks <laughs> who can't see me, um, and I built an app uh, after hearing about a lot of the challenges tech companies were having with uh, attracting and retaining diverse talent. And Blendor is uh, inclusive recruiting and people analytics that mitigate unconscious bias in hiring. Interesting. And how exactly does it do that? So part of it is uh, sourcing very diverse talent from all sorts of different awesome places and then showing your resume to employers, but without name, photo or any indication of age. And once that employer says, yes, this person is a great fit, your identity is revealed. But we then track your progress throughout the recruiting pipeline to identify where bias may be happening um, for or against any sort of demographic of people. How did you come up with the idea? So it started right after uh, a lot of the tech companies released their diversity numbers showing that they're about 2% African-American, 3% Latino, and 25% female. That's crazy. And yeah. (laughs) And uh, the narrative was, you know, it's a pipeline problem. We just can't find qualified women. Uh, and I knew that was BS. And so I wanted to not only create a technology that could connect companies with diverse talent in a scalable way, but also be able to use data to identify um, where bias is happening, how and why these systems that we use may not be as meritocratic and objective as we think, and even to sort of shine the light a bit more on the internal processes in people that are judging candidates as opposed to just the candidates themselves. That's really interesting. So have you found that there's a big difference if there is some technology involved or some sort of factor that's masking the gender or the race of the candidate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're relatively early in collecting enough data to have conclusive metrics around it, but this was already done um, 100 years ago with the symphonic orchestra. They decided to have all people try out behind a curtain. And that increased gender diversity by 5x, just the simple act of blind auditions alone. And so we're really replicating that ideology. Wow, that's really fascinating. Can you tell us about some of these companies that you've worked with? What is it that's motivating tech companies to deal with this particular issue right now? And how have you seen folks respond to some of the things that Blender is doing? Yeah, so we're working with lo- relatively large tech companies like the Salesforce, Microsofts, and Twitters of the world. And the response varies depending on who the stakeholder is. So if we're working with sort of a chief diversity officer or some- someone who's been hired Uh, specifically to help solve these issues. They're super excited about what we're doing. But when we dig a little deeper into some of the hiring managers and executives, 
um, the response is not quite as gung-ho because, again, we're sort of shining the light on their people decision-making. And everyone thinks they're just really great at judging other people. But the research has found that, you know, the resumes that we like in terms of how that person actually performs in a role is equivalent to throwing like a dart on a dartboard blindfolded. Like we just we're, we're really, really poor at, at decision making, particularly when judging women and people of color. And so sometimes we get a little pushback about how the data that we're producing can be punitive. Um, against managers or people that are um, making these decisions. Um, but we really want to focus on helping people understand that unconscious bias is a natural human way that all people think. It's innate, and until we sort of recognize it as a blind spot, we're limiting the possibility of hiring the abs- absolute best people. That's interesting. And have you found that companies have been more responsive if you're framing it in a non-punitive manner? Yes. Um, One of the biggest, most successful ways in which we do this is helping people understand ways in which they may have been, may have missed out on an opportunity because of their age, because of their height, because of their skin tone, etc. Age in particular is one uh, that you know, older white men really, it really resonates with them because it's something that, you know, we all, and we all end up getting older at some point. Um, and to think that you would be limited in your potential and your growth, uh, because of that is something that I think, uh, it transcends the race and gender conversation and makes it a a lot more relatable. Wow. That's really interesting. How exactly are you able to do that with folks? Um, it's really the pitch. We're not in the business of unconscious bias training. Um, I have mixed feelings about that effectiveness. Um, but more so, because we are speaking to technologists, just throwing out examples of how these sort of algorithms that are created could negatively impact you because it says that you graduated college in 1968, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you sort of frame it in terms of how uh, we're building technology to mitigate a lot of the biases, both tech-based and non-tech-based, Um, it makes a bit more sense. That's really interesting. On that note, let's talk a little bit about the sales cycle and what that looks like, because you guys obviously sell to enterprises. A lot of times it might be folks who are in HR. Sometimes it might be the chief diversity officer. Sometimes it might be hiring managers themselves. How do you vary your pitch based on whoever it is that you're talking with? Yeah, that's a good question. So enterprise SaaS sales is particularly challenging because you could have someone internally who really loves it, wants to bring it on board, but it's not right in terms of their budgeting cycle. It's not right in terms of who they need to get for approvals. And so one of the biggest things that I learned um, in the year since we've been selling the product is to find internal stakeholders as high up in the food chain as possible. They often have the ability to make decisions a lot quicker um, with a much fewer approvals necessary. Um, And also you see a bit difference in the adoption of the product internally. And so uh, we are no longer targeting the recruiters, the um, heads of DNI, and now focused on how we can sell this to executives um, and managers uh, and framing it again as a business problem, right? Like fundamentally, if you are not hiring the best people, if your recruiting systems are not meritocratic, that's, you're leaving money on the table. You're, you know, this is bigger than R&D. And so that pitch is different. Um, But we find for our enterprise SaaS sales approach, it to be a bit more effective. 
Hmm, interesting. Let's dig a little bit deeper into that. So I'm curious, just very basic, how exactly do you figure out who it is you should speak with at a company and how do you reach out to them and what does that first email or their first outreach look like? Yeah, you know, I learned a lot about uh, enterprise sales strategy from fundraising because it is very network and relationship based. And so I find that it's easier for me to get a meeting, to close a deal, if there is some um, sort of network overlap or commonality among me and the person that I'm trying to identify. So um, it's funny, someone just asked me the other day, what's your favorite social network? And I was like, oh, this is lame, but it's LinkedIn. Like I'm always on LinkedIn (laughs) because there's so much information about someone's career trajectory and easy to, you know, find those overlaps, those commonalities, common acquaintances, understanding what drives that person um, in terms of their career goals. Because I mean, that's really the biggest thing you want to pitch to someone who there's a clear value proposition for how your product will advance their goals. And unless you do that, you'll be long-term unsuccessful. And I think that's what a lot of these DNI companies are missing, is that you can't just uh, try to appeal to the better nature of people and expect great results. You need to really be able to pitch the business case and how it will help this person achieve whatever their um, short-term goals are. On the enterprise sales side, so there's obviously many different steps to it. One of the difficult part for startups is that it's such a long sales cycle and you need to have enough funding, you need to have enough ramp up room to sort of go through that entire sales cycle and, and still be standing at the end of that. So I'm wondering how long has it taken you to make that first contact to with someone and actually getting the contract signed? So not long. I think our sales cycle is a lot shorter because we've gotten a lot of good free press. And I was very intentional about that early on. So I did a ton of pitch competitions. I'm at every major DNI focused conference that I can physically go to. Um, and so it's funny, I spoke with uh, HP's head of diversity and she's like, I just want to start by saying I'm so happy to meet you. I've heard so much about you. I'm <laughs> such a fan girl. And I'm like, wow, okay, this is a good start, right? Um, And so that helps a lot when people have heard of you first. And of course, you know, there's a ton of articles and companies built around inbound marketing in and of itself. Um, But we were very intentional about that. And then also with our first product, making it so that companies could sign on and play around and get benefits from it without having to actually meet with us. Um, So as frictionless of a sign on and initial uh, traction process as possible. And then from that, we upsell. So, you know, we have the numbers, we have their engagement, and it's like, okay, well, we know you've interacted with, you know, 100,000 candidates in the last quarter. Let's get you, you know, on a real grown-up contract now to kind of take that to the next level. So it's really about, like, how you can really become visible, I think, as best as possible before that first meeting happens. Wow, so it sounds like you've taken a very multi-pronged approach, sort of a combination of being out there, being a known entity in this particular space and really becoming an expert combined with sort of a allowing people to play around with a product that inherently is well-designed and is easy for folks to use. So it almost becomes part of their workflow. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. And how exactly did you start to get some of that initial media attention? Because you've been on the cover of The Atlantic. You've obviously done a lot of work around figuring out what your, what your image is around this. Obama called you uh, the next Steve Jobs. So you've, you've already done so much work around it. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you pitched yourself or how you sort of got your name out there. So I think 
a lot of it has to do with the fact that Blendor ties so closely with my own personal story. Um, and people re resonate with stories. And I sort of represent, in a lot of ways, what America hopes to have more of. This sort of rags to hopefully riches. Um, but also this idea that, you know, the American dream should still be achievable. Um, you know, I came from a single parent um, household. My mom was actually homeless for a little bit while pregnant with me. But I started coding, you know, early, early on because of an auntie who earned a computer science degree. And that led me to Stanford and MIT and all these wonderful things. Um, but, you know, this idea that there's still opportunity, like technology was touted to be this great equalizer that it'll just, you know, we have free online education for everyone. So everyone could be an MIT grad. But that doesn't really, that doesn't fully um, acknowledge the inherent challenges of people who grow up in poverty, who are born to parents that don't have the wherewithal to give them access to resources. And so, you know, I very early on realized that by telling my personal story and helping people understand the dangers of bias, um, that, you know, the idea behind Blendor would be much more bolstered and relatable and receivable. And yeah, that's sort of what happened. And I, I don't know if that is, um, possible for all enterprise SaaS startups, but I think my recommendation to a founder would be to sort of dig deep into how and why you started what you did and don't be afraid to make it personal, to share that story um, because it goes a long way. Yeah, that's really, really wonderful advice. I, The original company that I, I started many years ago was very much tied to my own struggles with education and just the lack of critical thinking in education. And I think when you're talking about a story, your vision just suddenly becomes a lot more, your vision just becomes a lot more tangible mm -hmm. and it allows people to really sort of see how you are the right person to yeah. solve that particular issue. I think there's even a psycho some psychology behind it, like around storytelling and why yeah. human beings are able to sort of process and understand things when you frame it around a story versus just, you know, an ad or being pitched to. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you use storytelling in your pitches to companies as well? And how does your personal story tie into that? Like, is it awkward to bring up your background in that? Or, or do you sort of leave that off the table at that no. time? No. So some of my early meetings with Twitter, the gentleman who brought me in actually recommended that I go into my personal story, which I don't always feel comfortable doing in a sales call. But um, I have found that quite a few, um, you know, chief diversity officers want stories like mine to be told more often because there is still this strongly held belief that um, their processes are supremely meritocratic. And so my story sort of pokes holes at that belief that they're able to achieve that. Um, but usually, you know, I try to do as much research as possible to understand what the company's progress and attempts to create a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive workplace have been um, over the past few years since it's been in, you know, in the top of mind, and then go in sort of breaking that down and helping them to see ways in which we can bolster those efforts. And so that's actually partially what motivated the release of this product, BlendScore, where we audited 160 tech companies, picking apart everything from how many women and people of color they have on their board and executive team to their overall US workforce diversity and then what benefits packages and programs and initiatives they have. 
Um, and it was really surprising to see, for example, Facebook has no people of color on their board or executive team, and Sheryl Sandberg is the only woman. Oh, wow. And about 40% of their users are people of color, and I'm pretty sure at least half women. Um, but yeah, it's like, through that audit, we really got to see the stories, like the true, um, what I think is the true picture of whether or not these companies take this seriously or not, or are just sort of paying lip service to it to keep the press at bay. Uh, and that's the, that's the sort of thing that I want us to do more, sort of peel back the onion and, and, and help companies uh, really sort of put their money where their mouth is. Have companies been receptive to that? So far we've seen they have. Um, and I think it's because of the threat that we create sort of a competitive landscape around um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? Like we as millennials rely so heavily on school rankings, right? So why not have company rankings that aren't just rooted in employer reviews like Glassdoor, but rooted in, okay, well, how good are you treating all people? Um, and why isn't your you know, board of directors balanced if your customer base is? Um, those are the sort of things that we wanna start pushing as part of an employer's brand. And I think when you talk about branding and communications and marketing, you get a whole different set of people interested in what you're doing than just the DNI people, which we're excited about. That's really interesting. So it sounds like really going as high up as possible and sort of getting to someone who has as broad a purview over it. So we're not only talking about diverse employees, we're talking about all employees in general because it really affects the culture of the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I think anyone, even if you are a straight, cisgender, white guy, 27, like most people want to work in an environment where everyone can bring their whole, their whole selves to work um, because that's how you maximize value. And I don't think... People understand. It's funny. I even brought this up at a Stanford GSB class. The idea of code switching, and it was Fern Mandelbaum. And she's like, "Code switching? What does that mean? I've never heard of that." And it's like, <laughs> I grew up knowing that as a yeah. black woman, you have to be one way at home and a completely different way at work. Uh, versus the average white male has never really had that experience. Yeah. They are them their full selves at work, hiking at home, um, and so that 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 um, sort of inherent way in which we have to operate is taxing in and of itself. And it doesn't allow us to give to Google and Facebook as much as we could if, that, if the culture weren't that way. Um, and yeah, I think the more that we like, the more that we make that concept um, visible, the better, that, the more progress we'll have in a lot of these companies. Yeah, I think I've been really surprised at how the number really drops off as folks enter corporations when it comes to sort of the number of people of color at any given corporation. Like I, I grew up in a community that was very much a community of color. And when I look back at it and when I see the number of people who are working alongside me at corporations, most of my friends of color are not working at corporations. And some of it is that they've gone to corporations and they just haven't felt welcomed and are no longer working there because they don't feel like they can be authentic yeah. in that particular environment, which is really heartbreaking. And I feel like nothing can change that other than just changing the composition in a very organic way, little by little. I think it's particularly tough to, um, for people of color who have graduated from prestigious universities because all throughout our lives, we've been rewarded based on our 
you know, ability to study hard and to do mm-hmm. well. And then you get an environment where you're not rewarded for those things and you're not valued. Mm-hmm. And it's a harsh reality because it's like, wait a minute, I've I've been getting, you know, everything yeah. I've deserved all my life. Yeah. And now I'm being overlooked and there's no real standardized way like yeah. a, a test or a final exam mm-hmm. to to say, oh, you know, I I clearly know I deserve more than the grade that I got, right? Um, and that's, you know, part of the work that we're doing as well. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about funding a little bit because I wonder if you feel like your race and gender and background has impacted your ability to get funding or just sort of what are some of the questions you've been asked around that? Yeah, so I always tell people that fundraising has been the least meritocratic process that I've ever gone through in my entire life um, because... Uh, one, I think it's way more um, network driven and p- way more pattern matching uh, than we give credit to or take heed to. And the other is it, what's oftentimes neglected is the amount of work and energy and resources that have to go into a person of color's, you know, based on their background for them to even get to the point of MVP, right? Because you know, we sort of have this, a lot of VCs have this sort of standard like, okay, you need to have this, you need to have that. And we don't have the benefit of a family and friends round where we can, you know, raise $100,000 uh, from our rich uncle in yep. Connecticut, right? Um, <laughs> and so what I loved in particular about Pipeline Angels, Natalia Bertina Guara, she's the only person I've seen to date speak publicly about that fundamental problem is that there are so many people that don't have the resources um, and, you know, with just 20K can probably do something that, uh, create something that would take someone else 200K, right? Um, so, yeah, I realized pretty early on that most of my meetings with VCs were a waste of time in the sense of getting money from them, but valuable in terms of practicing the pitch, perfecting the pitch. Um, but we've been way more successful with angel investors by far. That's really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about Pipeline Angels? Because I know they've been pretty big on the angel investment scene on on multiple levels from a sort of gender perspective and diversity perspective, but also just from the perspective of being able to give more funding early on. And and could you also talk a little bit about what angel investing means in general? Yeah. So angel investing is basically a high net worth individual. I think you have to make a minimum of 250K, 200K. A single household, 250 double, or have more than a million dollars in assets, not including your primary residence. And what I love about what Pipeline is doing is they're working with a lot of women who fit those qualifications, um, but have never done any angel investing. So they put them through a six-month boot camp. They have a cohort of women that are all co-located in a major city. And they then hear pitches from founders, female founders in those locations. And it's really a great way to democratize a lot of the angel funding uh, for, for female investors. I think AngelList had this goal, but I think they have even fallen short of it because they, again, sort of impose the same, the same sort of rubric that weeds out a lot of people. And I think Pipeline Angels has been able to effectively um, go beyond that because of Natalia's very deliberate mission about giving opportunities to uh, women and non-binary femmes um, from all sorts of backgrounds. And I think with that sort of leadership, uh, things have just sort of fallen in place to be the way that it is. 
And why did you feel that an angel round was right for you? I, I felt an angel round was right for me because uh, we had just came out here and pitched and like not even yet a real good MVP. And I had companies tracking me down saying, hey, this is amazing. We want this. Now, this is my second startup. My first startup was a travel tech app focused on like a little bit of fintech too, like sharing expenses for travel. And I remember just how different it was pitching that to people in, in organizations and group and sort of taking a little bit of time to get them to warm up to the idea versus with Blendor, people were finding me to the point where it was a little scary um, saying, hey, <laughs> we want this, we need this, this is awesome. And so that's when I knew that, okay, yeah. I must be onto something and we should raise some money to make it happen. Interesting, that's really cool. We'd love to close out with this one question. Do you have advice for entrepreneurs who are trying to pitch to SaaS companies or for entrepreneurs who are trying to raise angel funding? Yes. Um, my advice for companies that are trying to raise angel funding, um, and this actually applies to, to pitching to enterprises, find those in your domain that are the biggest champions and that just get it. Um, there will there will be sort of that initial spark and catalyst to get you know sort of the snowball effect i made the early mistake of thinking that i could just pitch to everyone that you know has funded enterprise companies or that has funded dni companies um and it was it was really really inefficient the deals that we ended up closing were with folks who um, for whatever reason, have just been early champions in what we're doing. They've written books and blogs and have invested in other companies doing something similar. And we, I would have probably raised much quicker if I focused on that type of investor um, in those type of companies early on. Interesting. And how long did it take you to raise that first round? Oh, so we close our um, sort of pre-seed in probably like six months. Uh six to nine months give or take but yeah and then yeah getting customers have has been relatively easy because like i said we just got a a really huge uh, fan club early on but uh, fundraising took a little bit longer than i expected and it didn't all happen in one chunk right so we got some in june and then probably got another check in november it was sort of a rolling close um but but yeah we made it happen that's fantastic. Well, this is a really, really cool story. Thank you so much for yeah. being on our podcast today. No problem. Thanks for having me. You can follow Stephanie on Twitter at Stephanie Uriel. For learnings from our conversations with our awesome guests featured on Venture Vignettes, check me out on Medium or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and looking forward to seeing you next week.